Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pediatric infectious disease expert tells what's important to know about the multi-system inflammatory syndrome that's affecting children. It is a quite worrisome uh, syndrome because it appears to be quite severe. Most of the cases that have been reported were children in intensive care unit. Two scientists explain the impact of coronavirus in Ecuador and a relief effort that's underway. We're having a lot of not only medical issues, but a lot of uh, mental health being impacted and and basic human rights are, are lacking in a lot of areas. And a psychologist discusses the lingering psychological effects of living through a pandemic. I'm hoping that we take this as a defining opportunity to change what we need to change on a societal level so that it will reduce less stress. All that plus the healing news coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, on a special coronavirus-themed episode, two scientists tell about the impact of COVID-19 in Ecuador and a relief effort that's underway. Then, a psychologist discusses the lingering effects of living through a pandemic. But first, Pediatric Multisystem Inflammatory Syndrome. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. COVID-19 has been possibly linked to a mysterious inflammatory disease. I'll talk about this with Dr. Yana Shaw. She's a specialist in pediatric infectious diseases at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Shaw. Thank you for having me, Amber. So this is being called pediatric multisystem inflammatory syndrome. What can you tell us about it? Well, uh, it is a new condition um, that has been recently recognized by critical care and infectious disease expert um, initially in Europe, specifically in England, and subsequently uh, in the um, United States. Um, it is a condition that includes an, an involvement of a variety of different organs. Uh, it appears to primarily affect children. And um, the hallmark of the condition is um, inflammation. And it is an inflammation of uh, vessels, which we call or label vasculitis, primarily small arteries. Um, so it is uh, quite worrisome uh, syndrome because it appears to uh, be quite severe. Um, most of the cases that um, have been reported were children in intensive care unit. So you said inflammation of the vessels. Would we know if our child had inflamed vessels? Would it? Would we be able to see that? So. You, as a parent, would probably not recognize that. But what you, as a parent, would see in a child is um, prolonged fever, usually fever that lasts more than five days would be worrisome. Those children who had this syndrome had uh, rashes, they had uh, pink eyes, they had um, swollen hands and feet. A um, number of them had um, abdominal symptoms or GI symptoms, vomiting and diarrhea. Okay, so those would be sort of clues. Now, what what makes us think this is connected possibly to COVID-19? 
the reason why we think this might be connected and um, you know the cause has not been established yet however majority of the children who were affected by this condition uh, tested positive for um, the novel coronavirus um, and they either tested positive by the new molecular diagnostic assays that are often referred to as pcr assays or they tested positive by serology. Essentially, we found antibodies to this novel coronavirus in their blood. So does it seem to affect, uh, you said mostly children, but um, that could run the, the range from you know infant up to teen. Are, are we seeing it sort of across the board or does it target one age range? So, so far, um, I can only speak on what has been reported. Um, you know, New York City issued an alert a couple of weeks ago where they reported 15 children affected by this syndrome. And in that particular group, they were children of ages 2 to 15 years of age. However, as we learn more about the syndrome, we know that also younger children, infants can be affected and older children um, up to age of 21. But so far, we don't have a consistent uh, sort of cohort reported where we could, um, you know, give parents a very clear um, age distribution. Uh, but it's clear that any child um, uh, could be affected. Any age group is affected. So the alert from the New York State Department of Health said some of the features of this syndrome overlap with a disease called Kawasaki disease. Mm-hmm. Um, is that right? And do you see any correlation? Yeah, so Kawasaki disease is, um, is a systemic inflammatory uh, syndrome as well, and it's systemic vasculitis. Again, it's a disease that affects small vessels and specifically arteries. So the symptoms that we see in children with this uh, multi-system inflammatory uh, syndrome is very similar to Kawasaki, just like you said. And the symptoms that the children will present are very similar to Kawasaki. So this condition is not difficult to identify by either pediatricians or hospitalists or critical care uh, physicians because they're very familiar with Kawasaki disease. Um, Similarly to this new syndrome, Kawasaki disease will present with prolonged fever, with rashes, with swollen hands and feet, with gland swelling, um, uh, with children, children may have, um, you know, changes in their mouth, uh, swollen red tongue or cracked lips. So the disease is very similar in its manifestation. Um, However, um, for Kawasaki, we really do not know the cause. So we use the Kawasaki disease term uh, to describe this condition because the symptoms are very similar. Okay, interesting. Well, how how unusual is it for a virus uh, to cause symptoms so different in an adult from a child? If this turns out to be related to COVID-19, I, I mean, we're seeing like respiratory and fever in, you know, adults but this cascade of symptoms in children, but it's the same virus. So how unusual is that? It is very uh, interesting. Um, you know, you you are right. Um, and this novel coronavirus um, uh, has very different manifestation in children compared to adults, where adults mostly present with respiratory symptoms, cough, shortness of breath, 
and a rapid decline in the respiratory stratus requiring um, intubation and ventilation. For children, most of them appear to be either asymptomatic or have very mild disease. Um, so having um, this um, very severe manifestation uh, observed recently is of um, grave concern. Um, however, I'd like to mention that um, uh, although we are on lookout for this condition, so far as far as we know, um, only 100 cases as of uh, yesterday, uh, based on Governor Cuomo's report uh, of children have been identified with this condition in New York State. Considering um, that there are 4.6 million children in the state, you know, that would uh, let us believe this condition is very, very rare. So I would like to just um, assure parents, um, I don't want them to be uh, alarmed by these reports. Um, and because from what we know so far, uh, the severe manifestation of this virus appears very uncommon. That's encouraging. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Yana Shaw. She's a pediatric infectious disease expert at Upstate. So how is multisystem inflammatory syndrome being treated currently? We use the same treatment approaches as we would use for Kawasaki disease. Um, so we use action, um, and we also use um, intravascular immunoglobulin. Um, immunoglobulin is um, uh, one of the treatment approaches that has been successful in Kawasaki disease, primarily um, protecting those children's hearts. Okay. Well, let me ask you about COVID-19, not the inflammatory syndrome, but just if, if your child were to test positive for COVID-19, um, what is your advice for parents for if it's a baby or child or a teen? How do they handle this at home? So if um, the child is diagnosed with uh, COVID-19 and a child otherwise appears um, well, there is no reason to rush um, to either a, a pediatrician or emergency room. Um, so treat your child as you would treat um, any other um, mild um, viral illness, um, making sure that your child has a lot of fluids, rests, um, is important if your child is running fever, using antipyretics um, uh, can be helpful. However, if you start noticing that your child um, is not acting himself, um, exhibits any of the signs that I mentioned earlier, rash, um, uh, fever that doesn't go away, um, has a lot of vomiting or diarrhea, you should call your uh, primary care provider and seek their guidance. Um, of course, if your child appears to have no energy or is not um, acting himself or has trouble breathing, uh, that would be another reason to bring your child to emergency department. So it's definitely something you need to pay close attention to um, in terms of the fever and, and just keep monitoring that, right? That's correct. Yeah. You know, as a parent, you know your child best. Uh, so uh, you know when your child is not acting himself or acts differently from prior viral illnesses. And those differences in behavior and uh, symptoms should alert you 
to uh, call your provider or if there are some alarming signs, as I mentioned earlier, trouble breathing or child is, um, um, you know, not showing, um, is not responsive, those would be reasons to call 911 and bring your child to emergency department. Do you suppose this generation of children is going to grow up uh, being fastidious hand washers for the rest of their life after going through this? <laughs> <laughs> I would certainly hope so, Amber. Um, I um, um, I don't know uh, the answer. However, I can tell you that from personal experience as a you know as a mother, uh, my children have certainly been much more aware of germs and um, transmission of infection, and certainly have been much more fastidious about their hygiene and hand washing. Um, so I'm hoping that as parents, we, you know, influence our children and hopefully we role model for our children and strict hand hygiene is, is part of what we all should be doing today, uh, will hopefully have impact on our children as well. Do you think with, um, if we're actually following this uh, physical distancing and, and if we're good with the hand washing, will our children be healthier overall and will they... I mean, they're not going to be picking up other germs either, right? If they're careful about not touching their face and keeping their hands washed, that applies to all germs, not just coronavirus, right? Yes, and I think that's a very interesting question you raise. How will this, um, you know, um, decrease of transmission of other pathogens, which we have certainly observed, uh, will impact um, children's health overall? And um we don't have an answer for that. Um, and I'm sure people will be looking into it um, in, uh, in their research. Um, but I do have to um, you know, agree with you that we certainly, since we started with physical distancing, have seen over a decline of other respiratory pathogens, not just um, you know, the, um, infections associated with uh, this novel coronavirus. Um, so compared to last year, uh, we in our hospital alone, we have seen at least more than half um, decline of respiratory pathogens compared to the same period. Interesting. So the physical distancing works. Well, let me ask you, because we're very early from all accounts in this pandemic, um, in terms of the outlook for a vaccine, is that what it's going to take? to help parents feel confident sending their kids back to school? Do we need to have a vaccine before that happens? So I don't think we necessarily need to have a vaccine um, before we um, open schools. However, we do have to have testing capacity to ensure that we identify people who are um, infected, identify people who were exposed so we can track and isolate those people to um, to minimize the risk of transmission to others. And it's quite likely that schools will have to implement uh, new uh, policies to ensure that physical distancing is possible. Um, you know, it will take, um, it will take a large uh, population to be infected uh, with this virus uh, before we as a community develop herd immunity. And, um, you know, you might have heard that it may take 70 to 80 percent of the population to be infected so herd immunity can take place. And we are so far from that number. 
um, as far as we know, uh, less than 5% of the community in the Syracuse area has been infected with this virus. So there's still a lot of people out there who are susceptible. So do you envision that we will be wearing masks for a while longer? Yes, I do. Yes, um, I think that's a, that's an excellent point. Um, the masks um, that are now uh, universally recommended um, for, for public um, should stay in place until we can ensure um, that um, the, either the transmission of the virus has ceased or we have seen substantial uh, decline in, um, in new cases um, in the community. Wow. Well, thank you so much for this advice. Uh, this has been a Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Yana Shaw. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, what the pandemic is like in Ecuador. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. As rough as the situation has been in central New York during the pandemic, people in other parts of the world are struggling in ways we can hardly imagine. A group based in Ecuador is leading an emergency response to provide food and basic hygiene supplies to highly vulnerable families. It's a group through which many upstate students and faculty have learned about global health called Walking Palms. Speaking with me by phone are board member Anna Stewart Ibarra in Uruguay. She's an assistant professor at Upstate and also the scientific director for the Inter-American Institute for Global Change Research in Uruguay. And Avril Diaz, a young scientist and graduate of SUNY ESF in Syracuse, who is in Ecuador. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, both of you. Thank you. Hi, Amber. Thanks, Amber. Great to be back. If I understand correctly, the non-governmental organization Walking Palms was actually formed in response to a different disaster, the 2016 earthquake. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. And that was about four years ago when we, we had started that and have built it ever since. Okay. And this is Avril Diaz. So yeah, yeah. four years ago, um, has Ecuador fully recovered yet from the earthquake? No, we're still recovering from the earthquake. Um, this in 2020 is when we finally received funds for our area to start reconstructing our hospital. Um, but those efforts, and that was four years past uh, the earthquake, um, and the efforts have had to be put on pause because of the COVID-19 crisis. And I know, Anna, you were there uh, during the earthquake or right after, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was so in 2016, in April 2016, we were working in the southern coastal region of Ecuador with our research team doing different studies on mosquito-borne disease. And when the earthquake hit, we relocated our team and began to organize um, efforts to provide health care, basic health care to affected communities. And that's when Avriel joined us. She had 
been planning to do research with our team and really took on this amazing leadership role and uh, then founded the, the NGO that has continued to flourish today and continue to work with those same communities to provide health care. So, Avriel, um, being there in Ecuador, tell us, please, how has the pandemic affected the area where you're living? Yeah, so I would say that um, the big difference is that, you know, we're dealing with limited resources. We're dealing with a lot of issues with severe food shortages, um, lack of water in many of the neighborhoods surrounding our area. Um, you know, we have lack of access to basic medical supplies as well. Um, you know, people are living in isolation very differently than in areas that have access to internet. So you're, you could be living in a small house where, you know, there's no internet, there's no phone service. Uh, isolation is just extremely difficult right now for a lot of people, extreme heat, there's no fans or AC in a lot of areas. Um, so we're having a lot of not only medical issues, but a lot of uh, mental health being impacted and, and basic human rights are, are lacking in a lot of areas. I've read Ecuador described as the pandemic's epicenter in Latin America. Does it feel that way to you? Yes, it definitely feels that way. Um, I personally know many people that have passed from this, uh, and it's, it's very challenging right now. Are there more people per capita that are sick and affected by this than in America, do you know? Is it hitting Ecuador harder than it is? number-wise in America? Yeah, so I think that um, if you look at the numbers, you have about 0.18% that are infected in Ecuador versus 0.36% infected in, in the U.S. Um, so U.S. is showing more infection per capita, but there are such limited testing abilities here, so we really don't know how, how many more cases we potentially have. Um, but the death rate has you know, been reported as around 1,600 deaths, but in reality, we're seeing many more thousands of deaths related to COVID and not just from the virus itself, but from other health disparities. So lack of transportation to get medical use, to get medical supplies, extreme heat, um, you know, living in small area with lack of water. So I think there's severe under underreporting of of numbers. So, what is happening with the health system there? You said that there's a lack of basic medical supplies, and the hospital still needs to be rebuilt from the earthquake. What are people doing for health care? Mm -hmm. So, in our area, for example. Um, initially, the response was very slow, and I think that the medical systems had just a lack of information and also lack of basic medical resources. Uh, I my, myself was sick in the beginning of March, and personally speaking, um, you know, the healthcare system just wasn't prepared to handle uh, advising people as to where to go or how to even go about what to do with a patient that may potentially have COVID-19. Um, 
And so I think it's been pretty challenging. We also have very limited PPE. And so, you know, nurses and doctors, you know, live in fear for their own personal safety, which is so important. And I think, you know, with the lack of resources that we have, it's been very challenging um, to get people the proper attention. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with two scientists, Anna Stewart Ibarra in Uruguay and Avril Diaz in Ecuador. Uh, I wanted to ask you, in Ecuador, is there a, a complete sort of lockdown of the country, or how is the government responding? Yeah, so right now there is a complete lockdown, and that began in March. Uh, mid-March. So we have no public transportation and we have a mandatory curfew starting at 2 p.m. Marketplaces close around 1230. Um, we also have a system where you can only take your car out and, based on your license plate. So once a week and you enter the market based on the last digit of your social security um, also once a week. And so it's very, very strict here. And I think that the government um, is doing a, a good job of enforcing that. We can't leave the house for exercise, which has been very challenging for a lot of people. Again, being so isolated in, in very small homes, in extreme heat, it's extremely challenging. So you mentioned shortages of food and lack of water. Talk to me, if you will, about Walking Palms, the, the More Than Food initiative that you have. Yeah, so we started the More Than Food initiative uh, as a way to, to help the communities that we've been working in. The More Than Food initiative is, as it sounds, more than food. Um, in the boxes, they get um, ra food rations, of course, so that includes dairy, uh, fresh produce, staples, rice, flour, oatmeal, um, uh, different veggies, proteins. And then on top of that, we also provide uh, different mental health coping skills. And we've partnered with Peace in Minds, a Canadian-based organization um, led by psychologists and psychiatrists to, to develop that. The other thing that's included in the boxes are um, we are working with University of Wisconsin and Iowa State University on dengue prevention and science education. Right now, uh, we also have a dengue outbreak in Ecuador, uh, in our area. And so it's important that people are receiving information about co-infections. And then the other things that are uh, going to be included in the boxes are masks, cloth masks to wear outside uh, for everyday use and then um, reusable sanitary pads for women. So how do you get these supplies to the people that need them? So we have uh, a great partnership with the Municipio, which is the Ministry um, of Public Services and Health, and they have provided us with the permissions to be out past two o'clock, and also they provided us with transportation as well as biosecurity suits. And so our staff um, receives 
uh, different food and the materials from local vendors. And we're currently working with 13 local vendors trying to, to work with a few different groups from, from different areas to try to help the economy and, and kind of spread it that way. Uh, and it's been amazing to see how uh, empowered and inspiring so many of the local farmers have been to, to really get these food rations out so that we can make these deliveries. Wonderful. Well, Anna, let me ask you, um, how is this pandemic likely to impact the global health programs over the long term? That's a really good question, Amber, and I think uh, we still don't know. I can speak more broadly, study abroad and sort of global research has certainly come to a halt and it will likely be a while before those sorts of activities begin again. I know that there was a group of uh, students from SUNY Upstate who are planning on going to Ecuador this summer to do research on global health, and, and they will be doing that experience from Syracuse analyzing, or from home analyzing secondary data sources or doing other kinds of work. Um, so it's having a huge impact uh, on research. Um, it seems and, like yeah. something like this underscores the need to have global health education programs. But at the same time, it's making it, well, impossible to do them the way we used to do them, right? Certainly. And I think right now a lot of people are thinking about creative ways to have global education, but from wherever you are in the world, right? So um, you don't necessarily have to get on a plane to have a, a global health education opportunity, although clearly uh, being on the ground and having face-to-face -face interactions and experiencing local culture and uh, it is something that you can't replace through a Zoom meeting, but it, at least in the, in the next you know, number of months or the next period of time, it looks like that's the way we'll be going. Um, and as you mentioned though, I think this reinforces also the need for having uh, established platforms, established research programs and education and training programs and groups like, uh, like Avriel's group of Walking Palms on the ground and ready to respond when any epidemic hits, whether, you know, we were on the ground also when Zika hit just a few years ago, right after the earthquake. And so being able to already have those established partnerships, to be nimble, to be able to respond to the community and the global health research needs, that's really critical. And it's something that ha requires a long-term investment in partnerships that, that's not something that happens overnight. Right. Well, can you tell us what uh, the coronavirus pandemic is looking like in Uruguay? How is it affecting your life there? Um, thankfully, there have been few cases in Uruguay compared to other parts uh, of the Americas. We've had somewhere a little over 600 cases in a country of about 3 million. So it's been pretty quiet here. We've been working from home since mid-March, uh, but there's no mandated uh, curfew or mandate that we have to stay home, but people are choosing to stay and work from home. So for now, just waiting it out, you know, um, one of the most important measures they took were to was to close the borders because Uruguay is a very small country, sort of sandwiched in between Argentina and Brazil, and both countries have had many more cases. And so to reduce the risk for the local population, they, you know, immediately closed borders. And so the, the airport has very limited number of flights coming in and out, and, and we're just, you know, waiting to see what happens, but thankfully there have been um, very few, relatively few cases. And I think 
you know, less than 20 deaths associated with COVID here in Uruguay. Well, I appreciate both of your perspectives from where you're at. Uh, thank you to Anna Stewart-Ibarra in Uruguay and Avril Diaz in Ecuador. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. What are the lingering psychological effects of living through a pandemic? Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. What are the potential lingering psychological effects of living through a pandemic? Discussing with this with me today is psychologist Rich O'Neill. He's a professor in Upstate's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Thank you for your time, Dr. O'Neill. Thanks for having me, Amber. Do you believe most people will be able to bounce back once the stay-at-home restrictions are lifted? Oh, absolutely. I, uh, you know, if you think about the history of humanity, uh, we have survived many, many, many pandemics over the millennia, and um, we will survive this one. Uh, you know, it's uh, there. We are very, very resilient, um, both physically and psychologically. But things are going to be different, right? Do we need to like prepare ourselves for things not being the same as they were before? Oh, absolutely. I'm, uh, you know, who knows when they're going to go back to quote normal. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm personally, I'm thinking like, oh, uh, it's possible that I may be hunkered down in my house for a couple of years because I'm 67 years old. Uh, and you know, they're saying, well, we might be at high risk for a number of years. Who knows if there's going to, when there will be so-called herd immunity. And based on that data, it's possible that it'll be necessary for, you know, a lot of people, people who have heart disease, obesity, diabetes, some other underlying condition, um, and just the, <laughs> the underlying condition I have, which is getting older, um, which a lot of us have. Uh, we may have to be restricting our activities for quite some time, but we're going to get more data about that as we go. And uh, I think one of the key things, uh, from my point of view, both again physically and psychologically, is to make sure we take the data into account so that we can do what we need to do to reduce our the danger to us. Um, increase the predictability and the and the, the controllability of the danger uh, so that we'll feel less anxious and be able to act in our own best interest. Well, I wanted to ask you about that in terms of sort of the, there's a lot of like living in fear right now. And yes. I mean, that can't be healthy. Well, this is a key thing, Amber, uh, a key distinction for me. I use the word fear and the word anxiety to mean two different things. Uh, emotions 
are spontaneous physical reactions to real events in our lives. So fear to me is the spontaneous emotional reaction to a real danger. So to me, it's very reasonable right now to be afraid. So, you know, when we have our groceries delivered right now and we're like wiping them all off after, even after they're delivered with some kind of sanitizer, right? Right. Because right. we're afraid to pick up the virus because it might kill us, right? We get it, we might die. So that's a very reasonable fear. Uh, you know, there's the saying people that have, uh, don't be scared, be prepared. Well, actually, I think it, yeah, be scared. Because being scared right now, fear is reasonable and it motivates us to do things to protect ourselves. Now that's different than anxiety. Anxiety actually, to me, again, is related to unreasonable fear, unreasonable thoughts about danger, actually. So uh, the, t the job right now for us is to tell the difference between what's really something to be afraid of and to take action on. And when we're scaring ourselves needlessly, I was thinking before the show, I was thinking a good example of that uh, is whenever I think, you know, I, my kids live in Boston and Berkeley, California, so they're a long way from here. And I think, well, if I'm gonna travel there and gonna see them, I might not see them for a long time because there may be some real danger. Now, if I think to myself, I'm never going to see them again, that scares me, makes me sad and scares me, et cetera. But that's unreasonable because I don't know that for a fact. That's what we in psychology I call a negative prediction. You're predicting something bad's going to happen without any real data. But if I think, you know, well, right now, for now, it's dangerous to go to see them to be on a plane, to be seeing strangers, to even see them because they're in different cities and who knows, maybe they have, you know, been exposed to the virus and they're still carrying it, et cetera, even if they're not sick. That's reasonable. But to think I'm never going to see them again, I could make myself feel awful unnecessarily. So the job is notice our thoughts then get the data and test out the thought to see is that is that really reasonable or am I scaring myself unnecessarily? That's a really I good think. point. A really good point. Now you mentioned, you know, this may go on for not months, but years. Do, yes. do we need to sort of make peace with a more isolated life? Uh, uh, I, I would say yes. Um, certainly for right now. I don't know about make peace, um, but I, I would say adapt to it so that we can make the best of it uh, that we can. Um, you know, people are, we are social. We are right down to ourselves. We live longer if we have more connections to other people. We are healthier, we are happier. So, yeah, so one of the big challenges of this situation is how are we going to stay connected emotionally to other people for the, again, the physical and the emotional benefits of that social connection? 
And so if we can do that, develop these um, connections, these ways of being with other people, uh, for as long as is needed, that's a great thing. Uh, you know, and people have been, I've been amazed at how creative people are at connecting with each other in fun ways that I never would have anticipated. You know, I'm myself, like with my, my two sons and their wives, we've been playing games on the, on Zoom, you know, <laughs> the, the video conferencing system. And they set, you know, they have these internet capabilities to play different games together. So we get together and uh, we play games and we see each other and we socialize. And one of my sons told me the other day, oh yeah, they had a, a bachelor party that they were supposed to have last weekend. So how did they go about that? Well, they sent the groom-to-be uh, party eats via Instagram. They had him delivered to his house. Um, you know, all of his favorite foods, and they all got some of them themselves. And so they had this party where they were they were together on Zoom, and they were eating all the same stuff like they would to, if they were together. But they had done it creatively by using this new tool of, in this case, Instagram and Zoom. Very creative. You're listening yeah, we, to you're listening yeah. to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Rich O'Neill, a professor from the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Upstate, about the lingering psychological effects of living through a pandemic. Now, I wanted to ask you. This seems like sort of an event that can define a generation. What things do you think we're going to remember and be telling our grandchildren about years from now, about this time? Well, you know, uh, I, I certainly hope it defines us in a positive way, not in a negative way. Um, we, could, we could let ourselves be defined by this in a negative way. I'm hoping that we learn about the necessity for really good quality relationships. I'm hoping we learn more about the importance of exercise for ourselves, about the importance about going for a walk. I see more people out walking than I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> As you know, I'm a big exerciser. See people I've never seen before. Uh, you know, so I'm hoping this gives us the opportunity to sort of uh, redesign our lives and our society. I want to talk about that in a minute, but and our society uh, in ways that are healthier and give us greater satisfaction. If we could talk about on the societal level, uh, creating a society that has less stress for a larger number of people. Um, you know, I'm very lucky myself. I've had a well-paying job for the past, I don't know, I think it's 37 years now at Upstate. Um, and I'm, probably in no danger of losing my job, but there are many, many, many people who are not in my position and who live paycheck to paycheck, who literally, you know, the average amount of money people have saved is like a couple of hundred dollars. And no doubt for a great, great number of people, that money is gone already. So on a societal level, again, I'm hoping that we take this as a defining opportunity to uh, change what we need to change 
on a societal level so that it will produce less stress for you you know the people many many more people in the country than than is stressed right now because this is showing us how income insecurity and income inequality is having devastating effects on people you know without resources you're always anxious so i'm you know i spend time being afraid of covid but then i you know i don't i every once in a while i think to myself man what if i didn't have any money what if i was afraid about whether i was going to eat what if i couldn't afford to have my groceries delivered i would be scared to death what if i couldn't feed my kids i would be scared i would i would be furious <laughs> i would you know all of those things those on the personal emotional level a lot of those things are the result of societal uh, and political decisions that I think we have to make differently going forward and redefine the society for ourselves because those societal norms, we call them in my business, and the, I think systematic systems, in uh, those norms have enormous effects for people and the emotional state of people, the stress level, and as we're seeing across the country, how long people live, for instance, with people of color dying at, a, I think it's about roughly twice the rate of uh, people, you know, Caucasians uh, and people with resources. So let me ask you this, if our life changes and we get back to where we're allowed to come sort of out of our homes, but we're not supposed to gather in large groups, that's going to yes. be a significant change to our way of life. Is it? Yes. Is that worth mourning? Are I mean, are people people are yes. going to be sad about Absolutely. that? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I feel sad about a lot of things. Uh, the other day, I you know I'm a runner and a biker, and I wanted to run out to run around Green Lakes, and I thought I can't do that now because there's going to be too many people there, and even if they're, you know. There's not really room on the path to be six feet away. So I was sad about that. I, I really miss that. I really had to work to tell myself, don't do it. You know, I really wanted to. So there are going to be a lot of things that we uh, we can't do. Like I'm, again, <laughs> you know, my, my kids have been married for a couple of years. We're hoping to have grandkids. I would be so sad. I, I don't even want to think about this, <laughs> you know. Uh, like I was saying before, it's a negative prediction, but I'd be so sad if I couldn't be with my children when they have their children, or if I couldn't hold my grandkids. That would be, because I'm afraid of getting sick or making them sick, that would be a tremendous loss. So, um, you know, right now, though, that is a negative prediction. I don't have to deal with that yet. I'm going to put that on hold until this thing, you know, spools forward a bit and we see what actually happens and what actually we have to worry about but yeah we, and we have had a lot of losses you know we love getting together with other people we love being with our fellow baseball fans and our fellow uh, symphony lovers and opera lovers and you know sports fans etc we love those things we love getting together and if we can't do those things those will be very big losses it's very unlikely that will go on, you know, in perpetuity. You know, they are saying we'll eventually develop herd immunity. We know that from science. 
will eventually develop that um, and we will be safer eventually, but it may take quite a bit of time and we'll have to be disciplined um, and take really good care of ourselves and each other in the meantime. Good point. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Rich O'Neill from Upstate's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Ithaca poet and journalist Tish Perlman has had two near-death experiences. She gave us two poems to describe what that was like. I first will read, At Long Last. I only ask that the hand be revealed. I want to see what the universe will look like when I am banished from the hourly command to be here now. I want to know if I'll still sense the fog over the coast of California. Will it be a flash in the dark, or will I take all my memories to an energy beyond? I can't imagine abandoning the sacred mornings on the shoreline, or the twilight cry of gulls at low tide, or spring birdsong. Will you remember me? Will you remember me? Will that heartbreaking blue sky where one lone gull glides the steady winds, soaring, soaring, soaring into dissolve, will it carry me? The second poem is Requiem. There is no such thing as a return from near death. I am changed beyond recognition, inside where life began. I am no longer a viable human being, but a ghost in the world. I sit and I wait for the hour of the dying heart when the energy of a lifetime meets again with the sea. Lisa Wiley teaches English in Buffalo, New York. She sent us a short but joyful portrait of a good doctor. Here is Dr. Moon is my mother's oncologist. Wonder if I'll see all his phases. Luminous, his round smiling face pushes the celery colored curtains aside, pulling all anxious tides toward him. My mother questions her arm hooked up to the juice, my father calls it. You need this, Dr. Moon says, or else my whole life is wrong. These shimmering rays of certainty, no sliver of tiny crescents, waning or waxing. You've got this, asserts quick to laugh Luna, a brilliant harvest moon. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show, or to hear podcasts on a variety of health topics, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org. 
or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.